Thanks, Lynn. And uh, do keep that passage open as we uh, look through it. Uh, I'm thinking this week as I was looking at this passage and wondering how you view me as a pastor. Don't, don't answer that. It's rhetorical. Uh, how do you think God views me or other pastors as pastors? Uh, how should you encourage your children to think about Anna, our new children's and youth worker, or their Sunday school <coughs> teachers? Uh, if you're in Ignite or Roots, how should you view Adam and now Anna, who's uh, taking over? How does God measure Christian workers and their, their efforts? How should I view all of you? Now you're worried if that one's rhetorical. Uh, well, this passage is going to be fun because we're thinking about some of those things. Uh, so it's probably best we pray and then we're going to have a look through. So let's pray as we look through this chapter. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and your mercy to us in the Lord Jesus. May he be exalted today. May we trust him and know him and know his love and grace more. And we, as we elevate him, we pray that we would lower ourselves so that you alone may be glorified. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, before we think about this kind of three-way relationship between the church or Christians, uh, church or Christian workers and God, uh, we're first going to set the scene. Uh, so I've got three points. I think they're on the screen. Yeah, Tim looks like he's confident. There we go. Uh, number one is live by the Spirit from verses one to four. Now, we ended last week, chapter two, if you were here, thinking about how <coughs> if we are to know God, the only way that is possible is if we have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. We are, as was uh, very relevant to the Corinth Christians uh, who this letter was written to, uh, able to distinguish between the wisdom of this world and God's wisdom, uh, the wisdom of this world that uh, according to God is actually folly and God's wisdom that according to God looks like folly to the world. Remember that sort of great reversal from chapter two of that. We are able to know the difference between those two things because we have been given the Holy Spirit. He enables us to do it. And so these first four verses could kind of belong to that previous chapter, uh, but they also serve as an introduction to this week's. Uh, so have a look back at verse 14 of chapter two uh, from uh, last week, chapter 2, verse 14, uh, we saw this. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. So if you don't have the Spirit, you see what God says, and you consider it foolish, and you cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. In other words, you need the Spirit of God to understand God's wisdom. And then Paul ends chapter 2, uh, by pointing out that if we have the Spirit of God, verse, uh, end of verse 15, we have the mind of Christ. That's quite a statement, isn't it? We have the Holy Spirit. We have the mind of Christ. He's been given to us. In other words, to know God, you must have the Spirit given to you by God to understand his wisdom, uh, which is the good news, the gospel. So we need the Spirit to know that Jesus Christ was crucified for us. So it's pretty shocking as we start this uh, chapter that Paul addresses the Corinth Christians, I'd say that five times quickly, uh, he addresses them by saying this, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, brothers and sisters, I do not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. 
You may have the spirit, he says, but you really don't look like it. You don't live by the spirit. And then he goes on to define uh, what living by the spirit means in, in this context. And it's probably not what we think living by the spirit is. Uh, I've spent many years at uh, Bible colleges and uh, overseas missions uh, with people with a whole mixture of different beliefs and theological understandings about the Holy Spirit's work today. Uh, I'm asked sometimes by people here as well, which is great, why as a church we don't live by the Spirit? And my answer has become more and more convinced. We do very much live by the Spirit. The question is, what do we mean by living by the Spirit? And Paul is about to accuse the Corinth Christians of that same failure. He says, why don't you live by the Spirit? You're still worldly. But it's nothing to do with a lack of miraculous spiritual gifts or living in a way that's uh, sort of open to the Spirit's prompting. Uh, those kind of aspects he will talk about. We're going to reach those in chapter 12 later on, and he'll correct their misunderstanding of spiritual gifts uh, and things then. But here, Paul's definition of someone who doesn't live by the Spirit, someone who doesn't have the Spirit and live by it, is someone who quarrels and argues, who is jealous in a pursuit to look the best or to follow the best Christian leaders. In short, go right back to chapter one. It's uh, people who do who look disunited. Have a look at verses three and four. You are still worldly. It's the opposite side to these living by the spirit. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, you are are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, "I follow Paul," and another, "I follow Apollos." Are you not mere human beings? He compares this type of uh, jealous pursuit of elevating leaders and looking like the best Christians because we follow the best Christian leaders uh, as being in need of milk like a baby, he says. Uh, you may still be Christians. You've come out of the womb, but literally only just. You still need the milk. You're not living by the Spirit. You're barely any different from your pre-birth state, he says. Uh, Paul's been going on about this uh, worldly desire to look good and to follow the best leaders, right from chapter one, if you remember back there. And as we said then, this is not an issue of false teaching. It's an issue of being worldly rather than being spirit-led, if you like, because they are preoccupied with, this, with the worldly wisdoms out of which they should have come over and above the message which they are hearing. They're still impressed by the messenger rather than the message. If you like, living by the Spirit, as Paul suggests here, is to reject all things worldly that we once lived by and now to follow Christ. Jesus first. It's to reject the pride and the wisdom and the desires that we once lived by. And instead, as we've seen throughout chapter one and two, and we'll see again today, instead it's to put Jesus first. Uh, that's where he's going through this whole chapter. And it's the important thing to remember today, and, and that very final verse uh, will help us uh, summarize it. Chapter three, verse 23. You are of Christ, and Christ is of God. In other words, Jesus first. You belong to him, and he belongs to God. 
It's not elevating leaders who's going to tell us. You belong to him. He saved you. He gave you his spirit to believe. And Jesus belongs to God. So God alone is glorified. It's the obvious end, isn't it? If we get our perspective right here. A spirit-led life always glorifies God and no one else. So if you like living by the world, glorifies self or glorifies humanity. And living by the spirit glorifies God alone. So with that in mind, uh, and given their immaturity to seek and be impressed by worldly ways, how should they, how should we understand this relationship between uh, us as a church, our Christian workers, and God? And so we're going to spend the rest of our time uh, looking at three points, uh, the relationship between Christians, Christian workers, and God. That's from verse five to the end. And Paul's going to use three pictures to help us understand this. So I think we're on the screen. Uh, the three pictures he's going to take us through is a field, verses 5 to 9, a building, verses 10 to 15, and the temple, verses 16 to 17. And each picture is going to make the same points about this three-way relationship between God and Christian workers and the church. And effectively, they all reach a similar conclusion in verse 18 to 23, where he closes his argument. So. First of all, uh, Christian workers are servants by the grace of God. Christian workers are servants by the grace of God. And so have a look at the field illustration. It starts in verse 5. Uh, Paul says this. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Remember, Paul is the one writing it. So he's not saying I'm a bad teacher. He's saying, what are you making of us? They're only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. The servants of God, he says, who can only do what has been already assigned to us by God. If God had not assigned Paul to go to Corinth to preach Christ crucified, it would not have happened. He wouldn't have taken it upon himself to go to Corinth and to preach that message. They'd still be destined for hell and judgment. They wouldn't know of the love of Jesus that he came and was crucified for them. They wouldn't have known of his love. They wouldn't have known that Jesus lived the righteous life that they never could. That he was crucified on the cross and that took the wrath and the judgment of God and satisfied it on Jesus. They wouldn't have known that he rose again and calls them to himself. They wouldn't have received the Holy Spirit. They wouldn't have inherited eternal life in paradise unless, Paul says, God had sent me to you. He assigned me this task. He is the author of not only the gospel that saves us through Christ crucified, God is also the author of how that message is spread. He's the author of where Paul went and what Paul did. He's the author of what Apollos did and where Paul went, uh, Apollos went. He's the author of what Christian workers do today. Uh, so if you like, I'm not preaching this sermon here today because I'm a wonderful and precious man. I thought it was going to be some kind of response. Well, <laughs> no, God, in his grace to you, and well, maybe to me, not necessarily to you, in his grace has called me to preach this sermon today. I, I'm not doing it of my own a brilliance and skill and this is it is God's assignment to his people 
And so we give credit, not to me or to Tim or to Adam or Anna, we give our credit to God alone. Because you have heard the good news of Jesus, because you can hear his word taught. And so with that kind of right perspective, the Corinthians can hardly start arguing over which of these leaders was the best. Well, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. No, Paul says, that's nonsense. Whether I planted the seed, whether Apollos watered it, the farming analogy we're coming on to, both of us are just mere servants assigned by God. We're only doing it because he sent us. Not in a kind of specific way, but it wouldn't happen without God's assignment and work and grace. Let's have a look at verse 7. So neither the one who plants, speaking of himself, Paul, nor the one who waters, speaking of Apollos, is anything. But only God who makes things grow. We're nothing. Only God who makes things grow. Consider the building picture. Have a look at verse 10. Uh, verse 10 uh, says, by the grace God has given me, Paul speaking, I laid a foundation as, I, as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. He doesn't say I was a brilliant builder and you really ought to thank me and follow it. No, by God's grace, he gave me the ability to do it. It is all him. Uh, or the temple picture, verse 17. Uh, rather reverses the, the picture, but the point is the same. If anyone, verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, i.e. if a Christian worker does not do as God assigned them, you see the kind of carry on from the other imagery, God will destroy that person. But God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. God is in control. He is master over Christian workers, good ones, bad ones, and perhaps in the example of the uh, temple, uh, illustrations, false ones as well. Uh, so, for example, if Richard Koken hadn't been assigned by God to establish commission, plant nearly 20 church, over 20 churches now and 10 on the way, it wouldn't have happened. So, we don't worship or celebrate Richard Koken, is this being recorded? Uh, <laughs> we worship and praise and glorify God alone. Uh, if you were converted under the ministry of Steve Smith, who planted Grace Church some 13 years ago now, I think. Then God assigned Steve to do that work, to plant it. And so God alone is worthy of following and praising and glorifying. If, the, if in the highly unlikely event that you've benefited from any of my ministry, then it is clearly by the grace of God that that has happened. And so you don't worship or celebrate me, or Tim for watering, or Adam for doing something. God is to be praised alone. We are nothing, says Paul. Christian workers are servants by the grace of God. And so we're thankful to God alone for our salvation, for those who sow the seed, for those who water the seed, for those who pass on this message. We thank God for our Christian workers. We don't elevate or worship them. We worship and elevate the one who gives the power of growth in the field, who instructed the farmers to go out, who provided the sure foundation of Christ crucified for the builders to build on. For the church workers should know we do nothing, we are nothing, and we offer you nothing from within ourselves. We simply offer Jesus through the grace of God.
who not only sends us to you and empowers you through the Holy Spirit to hear and believe the words of his message, but he's also uh, the one who designed the whole salvation process in the first place. And so how sad it is if we elevate or boast in our Christian leaders. We actually dishonor Jesus when we do that. And even sadder when a Christian worker elevates themselves rather than Jesus. So there's much uh, to pray for for ourselves here, much to pray for the staff and the elders of Grace Church here as well. Christian workers are servants by the grace of God. Uh, our second point then that's going to come out of these uh, three illustrations is Christian workers are accountable to God for their work. Christian workers are accountable to God for their work. I know this is a rather sobering point for those of us in Christian ministry. And I think it serves two purposes in this passage. Number one, as Christian workers, we don't need and shouldn't seek reward from our work now here on earth. God will be the judge of our labours, as you'll see. The second thing it does is it hopefully keeps us very humble, at least it should. It should keep us trusting solely on the work of the Holy Spirit. For we're not seeking rewards from our congregations, from the people we serve, who may well value our dynamic and worldly impressive leadership, although you shouldn't, easier to do in some churches than others. But we seek God's reward, which is not based on our worldly impressiveness, but on our faithfulness of carrying out the duties he's assigned to us, doing what he's already planned to do through us anyway. So we share the milk of the gospel and the meat of discipleship, if you like. For in doing that, and only that, we are relying on the work of the Holy Spirit to change and grow hearts in the field and grow the, uh, build the building. So in the farming picture, verse 8, uh, the one who plants and the one who waters has one purpose, and they will be rewarded according to their labour. Not by the building, that doesn't make sense, is it? Oh, sorry, not by the, the farm, that doesn't make sense, but by the owner. God who makes things grow. Or the temple picture, uh, you get a great, there's a great warning of judgment. We already saw it uh, for the false worker, verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. But God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. And then in the building picture, that, that middle one, verses 12 to 15, we get uh, quite an explanation of this accountability and reward structure for Christian workers. It's the longest section in the New Testament about uh, this relationship between congregations, leaders, and God. So 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder, so the, the, church, the Christian worker, will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So what Paul's talking about is not that sort of sense of final judgment of salvation or not, because nobody is saved by what they do. No one's saved by works or how well you preach a sermon, fortunately. 
but we're saved by Christ crucified, grace alone. The warning here, and it's in other passages as well, uh, is for all of us, but here specifically for Christian workers, is that our labors will be tested in what Paul compares to a refiner's fire. So anything uh, you build out of gold and silver and costly stones will survive such a fire, won't it? Be improved if anything. But anything built of wood or hay or straw will be shown for what it is, nothing of lasting value. In the context of this passage, I think it helps us understand what those two types of building look like. It's this idea of wisdom and folly that Paul's been talking about all the way through so far. So anytime I impress you with my worldly wisdom and my persuasive techniques and my eloquent speech that attracts people to me or elevates me to be followed or to be impressed by me, well, that'll all be burned up. And I will suffer loss, perhaps shame at letting my saviour down on that day when he returns. Such workers will still be saved by grace, but our worldly work will be shown to uh, somehow be pointless and damaging to us. And we'll be saved as if only through the fire. And it will be a very painful day for many but I can only believe that as we face that day and our bad works are burned up and we come out as if just saved by fire, what's the conclusion? We just see that everything we've done in our own strength is nothing, come to nothing. And we can only now trust in the strength of Jesus and all that he's done. We're just left with Jesus at the end, as painful as it will be. But anytime I build solely on the foundation of Christ, Verse 11, when I teach only what appears uh, to be the foolishness of Christ crucified, well, then that quality is gold. For it is actually, ironically, nothing of me, is it? It's just Christ crucified. It's all of Jesus. And any time I present him and serve him and show him, that is gold. And ironically, when it's tested by the fire, it survives very well. And it's not even credited to me as the worker in a sense because it's just Jesus. I was doing what I was assigned to do. As a worker, we benefit from knowing that he has passed on the wisdom of God to his people through us. And the worker of God rejoices in the glory of God all the more. Uh, that context is explained further in those uh, final verses. So remembering this great reversal of wisdom and folly, uh, both as a listener and as the worker, Paul summarizes it like this. So this, uh, this is a question, are we building with gold or are we building with straw? Do not deceive yourselves, he says, verse 18. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, <coughs> you should become fools, so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting in human leaders. 
all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Christian workers are accountable to God for their work and whether they present the wisdom of God or the wisdom of the world. So again, please pray for them. Please think about where you teach and serve God. Don't elevate leaders and workers and don't tempt them with pride. They're accountable to God for their work. Uh, so the final aspect I'd like to briefly draw out uh, much more briefly from these three pictures uh, is very encouraging. Uh, our third point then is all things are yours in Christ under God. All things are yours under Christ, sorry, in Christ under God. Uh, the point Paul really wants to drive home, remember he's writing to the church uh, and giving them information about how Christian workers should be viewed and uh, so that's helpful to us to think about. But the point he really wants to make is how foolish it is to elevate those Christian leaders, for it's the opposite of God's wisdom. So you, the church, Christians, are the field in these pictures. You are the building in this picture. You are the temple where the Holy Spirit lives. Have a look at verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. Isn't that extraordinary? The farm labourers, the, the builders, should not be the objects of your interest. They exist only, uh, they only, sorry, they exist only for you, not the other way around. I don't exist, you don't exist for me. I'll get this right. <laughs> I exist for you. God's interest, if you like, is in the field. It is in the building. His interest is on the church that is built on the foundation of Christ. His interest is in the growth in the field as assigned by God. He has planned salvation not for Christian workers, although we're included in that. His interest is in the church, us all. So that God himself, by his spirit, may dwell with us. So what's the big point here? I think in other words, everything, and I mean everything, Paul's pretty inclusive at the end there in this world or life or death, the present or future, and polis and Paul, everything has been set by God to exist for his people to be the dwelling place of God. Everything in this entire world has been set in place by God to exist for his people to become the dwelling place of God. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Why would we elevate anyone other than Christ crucified, who is of God? Uh, verse 21 again. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or present, or the future, everything. All are yours, he says. Look around this world. Your Christian workers, your death, your life itself, everything. It's all for God's church. It's all for you. Life is all about the faith and the salvation we have in Christ crucified and nothing else. So we give up all human wisdom. All else is foolish to pursue. 
true wisdom and life and all is about Christ alone. Verse 23, you are of Christ and Christ is of God. And so we come full circle, don't we, as we end. We can only do one thing as we reflect on all of this. We glorify God alone by putting Jesus first in every aspect of our lives, within our churches as well, for he has given us everything. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we praise you for this good news of Jesus. Thank you that he died for us. Thank you he rose again to give us life. Thank you that you didn't just design salvation, but you design and assign how that message spreads across your world. So keep our Christian workers humble. Keep us humble. Help us to cast off all worldly human ways and desires to elevate Christ crucified alone, put Jesus first, to recognize that we exist, this entire world exists, for you to create your dwelling place among your people. Allow us to glorify you alone, to pray for each other, so that we may fulfill this purpose for your glory. And help us, we pray, by your spirit. Amen.